0: All right, hey, I'm Cameron. I'm the lead pastor here at Christ Community Church. If you would be turning in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be in verses 11 through 16 this morning. And just to remind you of the golden thread that was, that is running through the book of Ephesians that began at the very beginning, this idea of grace and peace. And if you remember, uh, what Robbie was talking about last time was the, just the glory of God's grace and how there's nothing that we do... to to earn God's love and there's nothing that we do to make God love us more even after he has bestowed his grace upon us and that we are being invited into this wonderful work that he's doing, this redemptive work in the world. And this morning what we're going to see is the first part of Paul's discussion on what peace looks like true peace, which is the opportunity for us to be truly and fully reconciled uh, with our neighbors, with those around us, which should be great news to so many of us who battle issues in our own families, who battle issues in our own workplaces, who battle issues in our own neighborhoods, who battle issues in our own country, all, all sorts of things of that nature where reconciliation is just, it just doesn't seem possible outside of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so uh, that is what I hope we'll see this morning is that uh, that we we must remember who we are apart from Christ as hopeless without God and know who we are in Christ as reconciled in peace to God and our neighbors. It's a matter of remembering who and whose we are to say it a little bit shorter. So the opening question that I have for you um, is... Uh, And it's kind of a trap question, so I'll just tell you that. I mean, I'm asking questions, so it's probably a trap at some level. Uh, And so, what is most definitive of who you are at present? Like, if I came to you and I said, hey, how would you describe yourself? Like, if if you had to use one word, if you had to define you at current, what would it be? Now, most of you think... Well, that's a terrible question. And it is kind of a bad question because it's it's a bit of a moving target, is it not? Right? So at present tips the hand that we in this world uh, go through a number of things that are definitive of us. Right? Most of you, if you are fresh off of making some large mistake, that probably is what is currently defining you. Some of you, if you're fresh off of some great victory... Right, that, then, then maybe, maybe that's what defines you. But how long do either of those things last? They don't, do they? Right. I mean, some of us still live in the glory days. Right. Like I, am still pretty certain I, I, I can, I I can, I can play basketball. I can ball. Uh, anytime I make sudden movements, it, it's not there anymore. It just isn't there anymore. The ACLs are not as tight as they used to be and the hips, the whole nine. Like Susan's all the time like, I'll start to make some sudden movements in the house. And Susan's like, ho, 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 you're going to hurt something. And I don't have time to put you in a home or have to convalesce you. So let's just, (laughs) let's stay in our box, stay in our lane, okay? Uh, (laughs) And so while we may try to return to that glory, it's always fading, is it not? It, It doesn't have the same feeling. Now, what's interesting, though, is our mistakes tend to stay in sharper relief for longer than do our victories, do they not? Which is why I love the way uh, in Luke 7, when the woman who is, comes to anoint Jesus' feet, the description of her is she is someone who is known to be a sinner. It actually doesn't give a definition. We've guessed at what we think it probably was, and, and maybe that's accurate, but my suspicion is that Scripture leaves it ambiguous so that any of us could step into that space and, and know what it's like to be defined by your sin, which many of us do. We know the, 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 just the poisonous, venomous taste of being defined by our mistakes, being defined by our sins. And yet this woman, though she was known to be a sinner, was willing to risk whatever, whatever it took to be able to praise at the feet of the one who had delivered her. And if you remember the way Jesus describes her, he says, uh, to, to, whom, to whom has been forgiven much learns to love much, right? And so my, my prayer is that that would be us this morning. That we would, in remembering who we were apart from Christ, right, uh, that we would remember what Robbie said to us last week. That remembering is not for us to do any sort of deep navel gazing and beat ourselves up and be neurotic about it or hash over it in such a way that it leaves us feeling more poorly about ourselves. This is not, this is not to, to worm theology, right? But what it should do is help us recognize how great the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf, how loving that the God of the universe, the creator of the universe said, I see a gap between us and I know you can never make it back across, but I will come to you. I will condescend to you. And and there's going to be a particular way in which it's described in this passage that I think we ought not miss and the table will help us out an awful lot at the end as well to remember it was not without cost. And so with that being the case, as you kind of think about how are you defined, right? That's that's a hard question, but one we often, we do wrestle with it because it's often being asked in a number of ways. Either when someone accuses you of something, they're defining you, right? Or when you accuse yourself or you celebrate for a second or whatever it may be, this is something that haunts us and we need a firm foundation because this stuff just changes too much. And it changes too for those of you who um, are about to become empty nesters. There's a handful of you uh, here. That's a hard transition. That what has defined you for so long, uh, being a parent and and having your home full of life and sin and no and all this kind of stuff. Um, it's it's jarring when it's gone, but it's glorious. <laughs> I have no apologies whatsoever, uh, and uh, I would do a jig, but again to. Pro- you know, the, the joint situation. Uh, and, so, um, and so I, I want to say to us, I know that there's those of us who are wrestling through these things. If, you are, if you're going through any sort of difficulty in your marriage, that's very decentering. We've got somebody who's about to get married next week. That'll be a new definition, right? Uh, and, and as much pr- preparation as they've put into it, it's still going to be, there's still going to be a learning curve, huge learning curve. Uh, that will redefine them in so many ways. So, if you would give your attention to the reading of God's Word, let's look at Ephesians 2, verses 11 and 12. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles, in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now that therefore is therefore, therefore, for reason. And so we, what he's, Paul is saying is because of God's grace. Now if for you to try to go and remember who you were apart from a remembrance of God's grace is very dangerous territory. To to go back and remember who you were as a sinner and hash back over all the mistakes you've made with with no application of grace and mercy is is dangerous and, in fact, uh, would be harmful to you and is harmful to us. We do it. How many times have you gone back over a mistake and said, yeah, but I'm not sure God can forgive that or have thought that God's forgiveness has not yet been applied to that individual circumstance? You're, you're still living out as if it, as if it were unforgiven, right? Let me make a distinction here. There's a distinction between consequence and what is actually true before the throne, is it not? There are some consequences that we do have. I mean, there's no getting around it in toto. You will have to live out and bear out for some length of time, right? However, that doesn't mean that it's definitive, What I mean by that? It doesn't mean that's how God views you. Remember that you, we, who are in Christ, when God looks upon us, what does he see? He sees the applied and finished work of Christ as definitive of who you now are. And we have this time, between the now and the not yet, to grow in our understanding of that, for the purpose of which, when we get to heaven, it will be all the more Glorious. So this isn't, this isn't hash back over your sins and remember how awful you were. No, it's because you have first set the pillar, the, the cornerstone, the lodestone of God's grace that now you can turn and remember who you were so that you look back to the cross with bigger eyes, bigger awe, bigger glory, right? And so he's just trying to get them to not forget how much God loves them. That's the purpose of this. And so he says, therefore, because of God's grace, now, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh. Now, we know that Gentiles were just everybody who's not a Jew, right, that was not born or native Jewish. In the flesh is a very important phrase. That's a temporary condition. That doesn't mean it's definitive. Now, I'm using definitive in its ultimate sense, right? That that which says who you are and whose you are ultimately. So their Gentileness was not definitive. And we've heard this again and again and again in Ephesians, right? It's why the doctrine of predestination is a doctrine of grace, not abuse. Not separation, but inclusion, right? It says, before the foundation of the world... God predetermined that you, the Gentiles who don't have any access, and he repeats it here again, who have no access to the means of grace, that you would have a way in, in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Amen? And so, what we see here is that this was not definitive. And here's, here's what's even more important notice what he says next. He says, called the uncircumcision by the circumcision. Now, for those of you who are nervous about what I'm about to say next, I'm not going to get into all the details. (laughs) But I do want to point out that there there was a group of people, right? It wasn't just that their flesh was defining them limitedly, but also there was a group of people external to them who were saying, here's who you are, right? And to be called the uncircumcision was to be called out, you're not in. You are other than. And in fact, the way the Jews used it in this case was to declare those people unworthy. Now, what's interesting about his language is he says, by those who are called the circumcision who do this in the flesh. Now, that phrase is actually the same phrase that's used for the fashioning of an idol. Whose idea was circumcision? It was God's idea, Right? And if you remember what covenant it was associated with, that, that should have been definitive of how they viewed it, right? So what covenant was circumcision associated with? The Abrahamic covenant. And in the Abrahamic covenant, if you remember, Israel was chosen for one purpose. What was that purpose? To bless the nations, to serve as the priesthood, not the judge, not the jury, not the executioner the priesthood. And what are priests supposed to do? They are supposed to proclaim the forgiveness of God, not as theirs to decide, right? It's not that the priest could say, well, yeah, Bill, nah, probably not so much. Amanda, yeah, she makes it down. You know, it's not that the priest had that sort of authority. They didn't, did they? What they had the authority to do was proclaim the glory of God and God's love for the nation's. And they were to proclaim it in such a way that it would be a welcoming thing, not something that would drive them away. So the sign that they were given was to remind them perpetually that they were God's people, their children were his, and they had a purpose. Now what they ended up doing with it is turning it into an idol. They made it a measure of distinction so that any who didn't have that sign were out, right? Instead of recognizing that those who don't have the sign, those are the folks you want to welcome in. It helped make it clear that those are the people you're supposed to be reaching, those who don't have the sign. So they should have had uh, mercy and, and hospitality and grace toward these folks, but they didn't. Instead, they made it a definitive distinction instead of, a means of grace by which they would serve the purpose they were called to. And so Paul is doing a lot here rhetorically, very quickly. He's saying a lot to a bunch of different people. He's actually taking the Jews somewhat to task as well for failing in some measure to do what it was they were called to do. That's why he says this was, it ended up just becoming something that was made in the flesh with human hands. Instead of evidencing the circumcision or the transformation of the heart. There's an external sign for the internal reality. And so straight away what Paul's saying is your flesh doesn't ultimately define you. Who you're born to, and that's good news for some of us. For those of us who've been born into some really difficult circumstances. Um, I've shared with you all a number of times I was born into a very difficult set of circumstances in my family. And so, fortunately, it has not been definitive. There were times I thought it was. There were times that I thought it was like gravity. It was a foregone conclusion that depression and even suicide was my lot in this life. And so, that has not been true. Christ has stepped in and said, no, that is not who you are to me. That is not who you are before the throne of God. It is not who you have to be in this world Why don't you turn your gaze from the things of the earth and look to the right hand of the Father, where Christ is seated on high, where your life is hidden, and it will be revealed in glory. That's just Colossians 3. And so he says your flesh doesn't define you. What this other group of people who thought they were the only chosen people, what they say about you does not define you, right? How many of you struggle I'm sure this is really acute in both middle school, high school, and maybe even college. How many of you have struggled with, and, and I'm sure it goes on, I think, I, I, it just feels more acute during those seasons, but how many of you have struggled with how someone else has defined you, right? Because, because you were more musical and a boy, you were artsy and a boy, or you were, you were athletic and a girl, Right? scientific in a girl or whatever it may be that we use to try to define and cut one another off. We, we made a mistake and that's all you ever hear about, right? And so, so it's really important that we recognize that other people do not have the actual power to define you. How many of you have wrestled with that because of some church you went to? Uh, and the leaders of the church Set, you, set, set a thing over you, right? That you're this, and that's how you're always dealt with. How many times have you heard that even maybe from a spouse? A spouse speaks something over you, and you don't know how to get out from under the weight of that. It could be a family member. It could be any circumstance. But what Paul is saying is so important for us to hear such great news. Your flesh, your mistakes, other people, they don't define you. Amen? And if that's not good news to you, I, I don't have better news than that because I do think that is a lot of where the battle rises and falls, does it not? So much of what we do in this world is about rating and about comparing and about thinking about and wrestling through and, and, and trying to get out from under. And yet what Paul is saying is that has been leveled. That no longer has to be the case. Again, doesn't mean there's not consequences. It should hurt when someone speaks an ill word over us. When someone you love tries to redefine you in a way or limit you in a way or act as if you can't ever grow or change. That's difficult to get out from under. That is a a very heavy burden. And so I want to say to you, especially parents and spouses, really this is to all of you, be careful the words you speak over another. Words are powerful. Ideas have consequences. Be careful that you, you don't, put someone in a position they can't ever grow in sanctification, they can't ever change. For those of us who've lived past a certain age can tell you, you change a lot. In fact, you you ought to grow in humility because the magnitude of your own brokenness and sin can be overwhelming. And so so we need a firm foundation in order to wrestle through these things. And he says, remember that you you were separated from the commonwealth of Israel. You didn't have all the stuff they had to help point you to God. You were in this world without God, and that is a fearsome condition. And yet, here's the good news. Does the Bible in here? What if this were the last verse of the Bible? Would you all make the effort to show up week in and week out to arrive at that conclusion? I would hope not. That's masochistic. But hear from Peter T. O'Brien, what it is that uh, uh, he says, this, this ought to do for us. The exhortation to remember, which stands like a rubric over verses 11 and 12, does not mean that they have actually forgotten what they were. Only that Paul wants to call these matters to their attention so that they will have a greater understanding and appreciation of the past. And the mighty reversal Christ has effected on their behalf. The privileges which they now enjoy would be appreciated all the more if they reflected carefully upon the spiritual condition from which they had been rescued. And and that is good news to us, again, that we're not left to go over our mistakes again and again and again without any benefit whatsoever whatsoever. And so the question that I have for you to consider is, have you ever been defined by what you lacked? Or you weren't according to someone else's or maybe even your own definition of your worth? Now that, That's a question probably, maybe leave that for Monday or Tuesday. Uh, meditate on the, the better question coming for the Lord's Day. But it is worth considering because so often it is those things that are having the biggest say over us instead of the pronouncement of your forgiveness in Christ that he announces every time an accusation comes up before the throne about you. Did you know that? Hebrews makes it very clear to us that Christ's work while finished in terms of redemption is not finished in terms of reminder. And so he continues whenever an accusation comes of one of his, of one of God's children before the throne, he makes intercession. Now why would Jesus need to continue to make intercession if his work in redemption is finished? Because we are so quick to forget Because we are so quick to move on and let other voices thunder louder over our hearts and minds than the one that is spoken for all eternity. So praise be to God that he keeps leaning back across and saying, no, that is not definitive. Yes, they messed up. Yes, they didn't do what they were supposed to one thousandth more time. But God, they are mine which means they are yours. And may they rise again to a new day knowing that's true, that your mercy, your grace is new every morning. And may the Spirit be at work to remember. And so he sends the Spirit again and again and again to remind us of who and whose we are. And with that being the case, what, if that's true, and I believe it is, then what hope did we ever have apart from Christ? What hope could there ever be that we could ever get any of this if it were not for his finished work, his consistent reminder, and his guaranteed coming again to make all things new? Let's turn back to the text and hear the rest of the good news of the peace of Christ that has come, uh, that doesn't leave us defined by who we think we are or who others think we are, but by who Christ declares us to be. Listen at these words, and remember, this is a bit of an echo, even from uh, 2, 1 through 10. You remember that great turn of phrase, but God? This time we get, um, but Christ. But now in Christ Jesus, you, who were once far off, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. And so what we have here is while the left to our own devices, we will define ourselves so poorly, we will define ourselves so toxically. Left to your devices, you're going to define me narrowly. You're going to define others poorly and toxically. We just do it. We, we are cynical. We, are, uh, we, just, we, don't, we just don't trust, and for good reason at times, right? I mean, if, if, you, if enough data points show up, then yeah, it's justified but he wasn't he wasn't okay leaving us there and so christ didn't just come and make a contract christ didn't just come and and be just obedient enough do you see the cost but now in christ jesus through his blood this was a costly purchase we who have been purchased out of the slavery of sin, we who have been called out of darkness to walk in his light, in his marvelous light, to use the scriptural term, we have been granted access, relationship with the creator of the universe to be redefined as sons and daughters of the God Most High, whose name we ought to ascribe glory and honor and praise, because of what he has done for us. And he was willing to pay that cost. He was willing to endure that shame of the cross, as Hebrews again tells us, for the joy that was set before him, which is our redemption. Now again, it's, sometimes I think we wrestle with the emotions of God. Like, eh, I mean, really, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of fatalistic, right? I mean, why would Jesus take joy? He knew it was going to happen. Or did he in his humanity? That's a whole other conversation. But why can't God show emotion since we are fashioned in his image and we show emotion not rightly. That's part of the fall. I mean, emotions didn't show up with the fall. Emotions have been affected by the fall. So God can show joy. He can take take and show grief when things aren't the way they're supposed to be, which is why he's willing to go to the lengths that he did. That Christ would be our peace in fulfillment of Isaiah 9. What's one of the great names of Jesus? What is he the prince of? He's the prince of peace. And what a great passage that is where he says, To you who sit in darkness, come out. Come out and behold, the war is over. He says all that the the swords have essentially been beaten into plowshares. We're all going to become farmers. Isn't that awesome? I saw a documentary last week, so I'm prepped. I think I'm ready. One hour and a half documentary, and I'm ready to go, right? No, I don't know what I'm talking about at all. Adam Wilson just died in his soul a little bit. Uh, And so, so we have the opportunity to experience the fullness of the peace of Christ. Micah 5 tells us that Jesus, the great shepherd, is our peace. So he is the full substance of it. And being that he's eternal and the work is finished, that is good news. It is no longer up for grabs. The question is, will we participate in the works of reconciliation to which he has called us? Will we accept that reconciliation is now possible in the darkest and most broken of circumstances? Will we have faith enough that that peace can make its way to the uttermost? And that is the lingering question, is will we take up all this that has been done, that dividing wall of hostility, which was physically in place in the temple at that time, um, Gentiles and women were kept further out from the worship space. In fact, Gentiles were the furthest out. And so there was an actual dividing wall. People were kept from being able to come to God. Which is one of the reasons why the curtain is torn from top to bottom when Christ declares it finished. So that the Holy of Holies could now be in the midst of the people. There was no barrier any longer. And that has implications not for just us and God. As it says here, he has redeemed both parties to God. Which means we both have the same problem. Even though the Jews had the, the law, even though the Jews had the circumcision, even though the Jews had the rainbow and in the, in the uh, Noahic covenant, even though they had all of that stuff, the promise of the Messiah, it didn't matter. They were still separated. And God was willing in and through the person and work of Christ to restore both of us to, to him and to one another. There's both the horizontal and the vertical aspect and too often, we act as if the horizontal aspect um, has not been reconciled. We act as if there's all sorts of dividing walls of hostility between us that cannot be, that cannot be brought down when, in essence, no, they, they've already been brought down. The question is, will you take up the means of grace to cross over those, once, those things that were once barriers and pursue? Now, There's a qualification that Paul gives us in another letter. You can only pursue peace as much as it depends on you, correct? So take heart for those of you who are not being received, and there's many of you I know in here, you're not being received in that regard. Continue to persevere. Continue to make sure that those folks know that you love them. Continue to keep it before them in some way, shape, or form at a rate that the Holy Spirit leads you to do. And, And just wait and see what the Lord is going to do. But know that... The hostility, the barrier is not permanent. It can be, it can be uh, overcome. And that is such great news to us who live in such a broken and fallen world um, that we have the opportunity uh, that that it is not the final say. And again, I've shared this with you all before. Every time I talk to my son, because of all of the stuff that was between us, all the hostility that lurked between he and I and my daughter as well <clears throat> it did not look like it was ever going to give. It didn't look like it was ever going to be repaired and yet I am in awe every time I talk to him. Which is such a great gift, right? Like I, I would love to be in awe every time I talk to any one of you. Right? I mean really I, I mean there's there's a sense in which we probably ought be. Right? Because how in the world would, would we really be friends? if it weren't for Christ who calls us together week in and week out? How many of you just, no show of hands, this is rhetorical. No public confession at this point. How many of you honestly think you're easy to live with? You're easy to know. You're easy to engage with on a regular basis. And I'm sure some of you are saying, yeah, if everybody else wasn't so stupid, yeah, probably, I'd be awesome. Right, like it's everyone else's problem. It's just not. It is you. It is us. It's us together. That's the problem, right? It's not, it's not just singular. This thing, is, this thing is hard. It is hard. And yet, God in his grace, week in and week out, he brings us together. And whatever condition that we show up in. And, and, he, and he calls us to unite around the cross. Around the resurrection of Jesus. Around the coming again of Christ. We'll do that here in just a moment. We will as family take together knowing that there is no hostility that remains except that which we keep alive, except that which we fail to put finally to death, nailed to the cross as Christ brokered it to be, and maybe it's on someone else's behalf. Maybe they refuse, and it's not up to you. Take heart. Take heart that as much as you want to see it different. God is already at work in so many ways to bring it about that it could be different someday. I'm not writing a guarantee because sometimes it doesn't happen in this life. But that is because of the hardness of heart of the individuals involved, not because of what God has done and made possible. And so what we see here is that there's a number of things that Christ has made possible for us. And Eugene Peterson does such a great job of pulling those things out. So I want to read to you what he had to say. Uh, And this comes from his book, Practice Resurrection, A Conversation on Growing Up in Christ. Listen to what he says. He says, each of the five actions of Jesus that adds up to peace contributes the detail and texture to our understanding of peace. Jesus brings us home. How many of you wrestle with just the idea of home? And what that can mean. I, I remember growing up, I would get off the school bus and I had no earthly idea what I was opening the door to that day. It was almost a, a carnival of horrors in some variety of sense. Um, and, and it really upset for years and years and years my concept of home. I always felt very disenfranchised, very just discombobulated. I didn't feel welcome anywhere. And yet, my wife has done this amazing job in the two places that we've lived mostly Uh, Even the Ackworth house, which we knew was temporary, she made that thing home. And it made it to where I was opening the door, not on something unpredictable, but something that was firmly rooted and founded every day. And I can't tell you what that means to me, who has for so long felt so cut off and so broken and so lost. And so Jesus brings us to this thing called home. And then Jesus brings us together. Golly, how separated we are on on so, so, so many things. Um, How we talk past each other so much. He breaks down, as he says, Jesus breaks down hostility. What a gift that we don't have to be at war unless we choose to be. We don't have to destroy one another verbally, physically, or otherwise. And he also says Jesus recreates us as a unified humanity. Man, isn't the world screaming for that? It is calling for it, and yet the solutions that it's offering will never lead us there. If you read history at all, it's just a wash, rinse, repeat. In fact, I've shared with you that I've been reading this book on Russian history, right, called Russia Under the Old Regime, just a perfect title for a book on Russia. And there's passages in there that I could read to you, and, and if you didn't know about that book, and say, hey, what... What country, what history, what period is this from? You would say today. You would say, America, today. And I'd have to correct you and say, kind of, but it's actually Russia in the 17th century. Russia in the 18th century. Nothing new east of Eden. We've been, doing, we've been searching human solutions and trying to make life work without God for a long, long, long time. But Jesus makes it possible for us, truly possible for us to be a unified humanity. Not without work, though, is it? Right? It's not just because he did what he did doesn't mean there's not work for us to take up. Remember uh, 2.10, Ephesians 2.10. There's good works that have been prepared for us beforehand. The question is, will we participate in them? And then he goes on to say, Jesus reconciles us all to God. Peace, listen, I love this, is complex and many-layered. A lot of action goes into making peace, and Jesus is that action. And so, what a great gift that we've been given, peace through the blood of Christ with God, with each other, with ourselves. So here's the question that I would encourage you to spend some time this Lord's Day Sabbath contemplating, because I think it's a worthy question and really more a matter of prayer than you figuring something out. What dividing walls of hostility has Christ brought down in your various relationships? It's important that we be able to see where Christ has been victorious, right? We need to be reminded of the good things that Christ has done in order to undertake the hard work of participating in peace and reconciliation. So it's good that we would remember, where has he done this before that we've seen, either in our lives or in the lives of the people around us? And then, and then what walls is he currently working on bringing down? in your spheres of influence? And how might you participate in that as one who bears his image, as one who has been bought with the blood of Jesus, as one who is at peace with God and with those around them? How might you participate? Maybe it's something as simple as you just commit it to prayer. I can confess to you, I give up on prayer so quick and so easy. I am not anything close to the persistent widow that Jesus speaks of. I don't assail heaven as if, God, I know this is important to you. We know reconciliation is important to God. We should should persist and we should assail heaven. That's not arrogant. For us to ask God to do what he sent Jesus to make possible in this world. And so, and then, what ways has he invited you into participating in this work? You're not going to be the savior. You might be a blip on the radar, but how might you participate? And in, in fact, and I will, I will make sure you understand, it oftentimes looks nothing like what you would think. Sometimes the participation looks like failing. Sometimes you, you, you share a word and the person goes away seeming angry, but they just need space to deal with it and wrestle with it and think about it. And sometimes it does actually make them angry. And then the Lord works on, uses the fire to burn down some of that coal in their heart. And so it's not always about success, but it is about persistence. It's about us knowing who God really is and what it is that he wants in this world. And joining in that work over and over and over and over again. Based on my experience thus far, some things that, uh, acts of reconciliation, they take 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And we should persist in those things. We don't like the 20 years. Like, those of you who are like, 5, when you hit 10, 15, 20, like, you lost me a little bit. But notice there was also a reconciliation project that was 400 years in the making. There was another one that was about 2,000 years in the making. God is patient. He is kind. He is long-suffering, and so should we be with these potentialities for reconciliation. Again, how will the world know who we are? By the love that we show one another. All right, now you got to think about this for a second. Me just being nice to you all at the front door, right? Do you think the world goes, man, that Cameron, he is, a, he is a fantastic greeter. Like if I had a greeting position and I need to hire somebody, he's my guy. He's, he, as a Christian, he's amazing. Is that, you think that's it? Or, or saying, no, 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 you go first. No, 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 you take the last little bit of coffee. I'll just bear with a headache and nausea for the whole service because I'm Christ-like. No, you go ahead. You take the last of it, right? Um, and so, no, that's not You need to understand that what Jesus was talking about was they were going to be significantly tested and they were going to turn on him and they were going to turn on each other. And if they were willing to persist in long-suffering and forgiveness and love one another, then the world would know, hold on a second, these folks are something different. And so for us, what we have to understand is for the world to know who we are by the love we show for one another, that means that sparks are probably going to fly. That means that we're probably going to have to do the hard work of coming to each other with either an offense given or an offense taken to seek to make that right. And we should be quick, 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 quick to forgive one another. Not cheaply, but in when there is true reconciliation, true forgiveness to be given, we need to be the fastest to dole it out And we need to be those who are at work to see it happen. We can't let things linger. That's just, that's what the world does. Anybody can do that. But to love one another when you're at odds, to love one another when you've been offended, to love one another when you've offended and you just want to be right or make them hate the fact that they're right. And to lay all that down, like Christ, who could have said, I don't have to die for these people. Enemies? Are you crazy? Who dies for their enemies? Only one. Truly, Christ did. Remember who you were. But remember who you were on the firm foundation of God's grace so that it magnifies who you have now become and are becoming and who you will be in the new heavens and new earth. So Ephesians 2.11-16 teaches us that apart from Christ, we had no hope and were without God in the world. But in Christ, we have been reconciled in peace with God and our neighbors. What a, what a wonderful gift to us that we get to partake of the table today as it is so declarative of the bringing down of those walls of separation. Now, I want you to uh, think about as you, um, are, you receive the elements and you pass them to the person next to you. Right? I want you to consider, are you, are you in awe at all that God would save that person sitting next to you? That God would care about that person at all? Are you, are you in awe that the plate came into your hands? That Christ would say to you who he's redeemed, take and eat and remember. Remember what I have done for you. Remember my love for you. Remember that your shame and your guilt are no longer definitive. Remember that God's wrath is not something for you to fear in its ultimate sense. Remember that I love you. And so, just as he said to them on that night, he says to us in this morning, he says, This, this is my body, and it's given for you. And he used bread because it was just something they were going to have to deal with a lot. Um, It's a good thing they didn't have the keto diet back then, I guess. (laughs) Might have been something different, I guess. But he knew it was something that they were going to deal with an awful lot. And they would be reminded often of his love for them. That as they would take the opportunity to remember. That's why he says, do this in remembrance of me and what I have done for you. So we, this morning, have the opportunity. no, No, I didn't catch it. We have the opportunity to remember not only what he has done, but who we were so that we can take greater joy in who we have become and are becoming. If you're not a believer, this is not much of a lunch for you. Let it pass you by, right? If, if you don't know Christ as Savior, um, if you for some reason think there's somebody in, that doesn't deserve this, doesn't deserve Christ's redemption, And you also got to let it pass you by because that's for you to declare yourself God over those he would forgive. If you're for some reason under church discipline, you're coming from another church and you're under church discipline, I don't know of anybody in that category, but you know your own conscience, also let it pass by until you've made that right. But for everybody else, if you struggle to make it here this morning, if you've struggled to keep it together, struggle to stay awake, struggle because it was hot, struggle because of whatever it may be, take and eat knowing that who you are in Christ is firmly founded, and that doesn't define you. If you came in this week and you, you, haven't, you just haven't been stellar in your Christianity, no banners will be unfurled, declaring your piety amazing. Well, that's okay, too. You get to take and eat because Christ has unfurled a banner with your name on it in heaven. And you get to take and eat because shame and guilt's been taken away. So when you receive, if you would just hold... And we'll take together as family, again, declaring the walls of hostility have been brought down. And be nourished in your faith in the power of the Holy Spirit so that you are defined by Christ alone through grace alone in your faith alone. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this meal. Thank you for Christ's work. Thank you that we are no longer defined by our mistakes. And we are not defined by victories that we can't repeat Thank you that we are defined solely through the personal work of Christ. For those of us who know you, for those who don't know you, I pray they would come to be defined by you. Would you use this bread to nourish our faith, to help us turn our gaze from the things of the earth, to look to where Christ is seated at the right hand, where our lives are hidden, that will be displayed in glory. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen.